We have been in a teaching series here at St. Mark for the past couple of weeks that we've been calling Tried and True. And in this series, the heart behind it has been to take some of the tried and true wisdom of the scriptures and apply it to our lives. And in so doing, make ourselves just a little bit wiser. And the way that we've been starting off each of the messages in this series is with a couple of words of wisdom, a couple of words to the wise, just to kind of get our brains engaged and our thoughts turning a little bit. So I've brought a few words of wisdom that I would like to share with you this morning. The first one is this. It comes to us from philosopher James K.A. Smith. He says, you are what you love. You are what you love. In other words, a lot of our life, a lot of our actions and activities in the world are kind of defined and set up by the things that we love most. It's the things that we cherish that are the things that we chase after. All of our life is kind of bent towards having a, a goal in mind, an ideal in mind, and we are in love with that ideal, and that ideal sort of defines who we become as people. The second word to the wise for this morning is probably a little bit more familiar to all of us. Uh, it says, it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. And to paraphrase this just a little bit based on my own recent and personal experience, it is better to cry yourself to sleep than to turn off the Super Bowl. <laughs> I had a rough week last week, guys. I'm still dressed in all black because I'm mourning the occasion, but in case you don't believe me, in case you don't take my word for it, I've got a couple of pictures to show you just how bad last week went for me. <laughs> You've heard about burying your head in the sand. How about burying your head in the sofa? Or lifting up your hands in frustration, lift up your shoes in frustration. I don't know how this is going. But uh, <laughs> on to more important things. Our next word for wisdom this morning comes to us from the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 15, verse 17. Solomon tells us this, Better is a light dinner with love, or where love is, than a feast filled with hatred. In other words, love is better than stuff. There's all this stuff that we kind of chase after in this life, the, the biggest house, the newest car, and the fanciest watch that we can wear. And, and even if we get all of that stuff, if we don't have love, if we don't have relationships that kind of ground us in love and fill not just uh, our kind of our houses, but our, our spirits and our souls, th then all of that stuff isn't as great as it's cracked up to be. Our last word of wisdom to kind of start off this morning comes to us from none other than Jesus himself in the Gospel of John. John 15, 13, Jesus says this, There is no greater love than this, the love that lays down its life for one's friends. And it's this verse, this quote for this morning that I kind of want to ground us for the rest of our conversation and our time together. Why? Because again, in this series of tried and true, we've been trying to take the tried and true wisdom of scriptures and apply them to our lives. And if you investigate the scriptures, like if you take the time to read them from cover to cover, like the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you will find is this, that the most tried and true wisdom that the scriptures put forward to us time and time again is the wisdom of love. And the scriptures will show us the wisdom of love in a couple of ways. They will first show us the wisdom in, in the model of love in Christ Jesus. The, the model of love, love perfectly embodied in Christ Jesus, powerfully on display, most clearly in his life and his death and his resurrection. But then the scriptures will also point us to the wisdom of love in its call to love. 
a call most clearly for us to reflect and reiterate and embody the love that was first shown to us in Jesus as we live our lives, as we interact with those around us in this world. But for as much as the scriptures show us the wisdom of love and both the model of love and the call to love, the scriptures will also show us some pretty clear examples of foolish love. The scriptures will tell us what human love, foolish love, on its own reason and strength looks like. And the way that scripture testifies to this uh, foolish love is, is by calling it lazy. Human love is lazy love. And, and there's a pretty clear way that, that we can recognize lazy love. If you're ever on the lookout for it, this is what lazy love looks like. Lazy love looks like excuses. Lazy love is love that likes to love in name only, but not actually put any of the work in. It's love that kind of says, I would love to, comma, but. I would love to help, but I can't. I would love to hear more about your day. I would love to hear more about how your life is going, how the kids are doing, how the marriage is going, but I've got a meeting in five. Can this wait? Can we put this off to another day, another week, another month, maybe? Lazy love is the love that doesn't actually make the time to love. It doesn't put the time where its mouth is. Lazy love makes excuses, but then lazy love also always lets us down. Lazy love, human love, has this habit, this annoying habit of just disappointing us. Because we all have this idea of love, right? We all hold that word love to high esteem. We all expect to be loved well, but then we see the way that we experience love around us, and it just never actually meets that standard the way we'd like it to. Our, our love is lazy. Our love always lets us down. But then we look at the biblical picture of love. We, we look at the example of love most clearly shown in Jesus, and we see that tried and true love, biblical love, it's just the opposite. Why? Because Jesus' love, it's never lazy. Jesus' love never lets you down. Jesus' love is an active kind of love, an unconditional and faithful sort of love that doesn't let you down. It actually lifts you up. And encourages you. And this is the kind of love that the scriptures testify to over and over again, especially in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul, he's writing to the Roman church, trying to correct a little bit of their lazy love. And the reason why there was a little bit of lazy love in the Roman church was because there was one particular group of people, the, the Jewish Christians in the Roman church, who were super lazy with their love. These were the kind of people who liked to love in name only, but not put what they preached into practice. They were the kind of people who said they, they knew God's love, they knew God's law, and they loved it. They held it in such high regard, but when it came time to meet the needs of the people around them, when it came time to humble themselves and sacrifice and, and serve those around them, they were horrible at it. They, they never actually put that love into practice. It was lazy. And so Paul calls this out point blank. Look with me again at Romans 12, starting at verse 9. Paul says this, let your love be genuine. And if you took that word genuine apart in the original language, what it actually means is let your love be without hypocrisy. Let your love not just be this superficial love, this love on the surface, this love in words, but actually a deeper love, a love that extends itself not only in name, but in truth and in deed and in action. He says, let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with this deep and true brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Be the first one in line to show each other honor. 
Do not be slothful. In other words, do not be lazy in your love, lazy in your zeal, but be fervent, the first in your spirit to serve the Lord. And there's this word at the very end of verse 10 that I want us to kind of grab a hold of for just a minute. It's that word honor. Because in this word honor, Paul is trying to show us what actual biblical love looks like on a practical level. Because the word picture for that word honor, it's, it's simply this. It is kind of bending down and lifting up. Right? When you honor something, you hold it in high esteem. You kind of put it on a pedestal. You, you exalt it. You raise it. You, you lift it up. This is the motion of love. It, it's not love at a distance. It's not a love that holds people at arm's length. It's a love that gets close and draws near and lifts up. It, it's not a lazy love. It's not a transactional sort of love that demands its own needs be met first. No, it's the love that makes the first move. It's the love that initiates. It's the love that leads the way. It is the love that shows others the grace of God as it is shown to them first in Christ Jesus. That is what true, tried and true biblical love looks like, according to Paul. It's honor. It's lifting up, not letting someone down. And after Paul shows us how to love in the way of honor, he's going to give us, or really the church in Rome, a couple of practical examples of who to love. He's going to give three specific examples, three groups of people to be on the lookout for with regards to love, the helpless and the hateful and the hurting, the helpless and the hateful and the hurting. The first group of people that Paul tells the Christian church to look out for in Rome is the helpless. Look with me again at verse 13. Paul tells the church in Rome, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show them hospitality. Just a little bit of context for this verse, the day and age in which Paul was writing. The first century church in Rome was not made up of rich people. The first century church, or really the church throughout most of history, has not been made up by rich people. No, the church, the Christian church, the message of Jesus has always attracted the least of these. It's attracted the poorest of the poor. And this was especially true in, in the church in Rome, where you had a couple of people in the Roman Empire who had all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the prestige, and just no middle class. It was just servants underneath it. And, and it was these servants and these slaves who, who found the message of Jesus and were just incredibly attracted to it. They heard words that Jesus preached on the Sermon of the Mount like these, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. And they, and they flocked to the church. They, they flocked to the church in, in search of the power of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus in the form of a loving community. And what a lot of them found was just the opposite. What a lot of the early church found when they were looking for a loving community was actually this sense of isolation in the church. This thought of being alone. Why? Well, because there was one particular group of people in the Roman church, the Jewish Christians, who kind of held everybody at arm's length. The, the Jewish Christians, they kind of had their own lunch table. They were the popular kids. They were the kids who had been around a while, the ones who knew God's law, knew it kind of inside and out. And then the Gentile Christians, they come in. They're the new kids on the block. And the Jewish Christians, they would kind of wave at them from a distance, but they still thought they were unclean. They would wave at them from a distance, but they wouldn't seek to know them. They wouldn't look to know their name or know their story. They would just kind of keep them over here. 
And then Paul looks at the Jewish Christians, he looks at the Roman church, and he says, what are you doing? That is not what tried and true love looks like. No, tried and true love, biblical love, looks like hospitality. It looks like reaching out and bringing in. Hospitality, not just having an open hand with your, with your financial resources, but an open heart to the people around you and an open home to let those people into it, setting a place at your table for the stranger, for the foreigner, for the person who does not look like you at all. That is what hospitality looks like. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage the Jewish Christians for, to have, a, have an eye and an ear for the helpless around them, to invite them in to know their stories, not to exist in church just in like cliques or circles or this old little bubble where everybody's known everybody for the last 50 years and there's never a new person involved. It's a place that is constantly inviting, constantly bringing in, constantly reaching out with the life-changing love of Jesus. The first group of people that Paul tells the Roman church to look out for is the helpless. But the second group of people that Paul tells the Roman church to look out for and to love is actually the hateful. Look with me again at Romans 12, verse 14. Paul says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Again, stepping back into the context, the day and time in which Paul was writing, (laughs) Being a Christian in the first century church was not easy. There there was a lot of persecution coming for the earliest of Christians, not just from from the Roman Empire and the leaders of Rome, but also from from the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders who would would tag up or tag team with Rome and just round up all the Christians they could and, and send them off to prison or send them off to the Colosseum eventually to like do battle to the death with the lions. There was there was a lot of fear going on in the church. There was this feeling as if the the world was kind of against the church, and in a lot of ways, it sort of was. But Paul's answer to that persecution, Paul's answer to the curse that that early church feels is not to curse them in return, but to bless them. And and to understand what Paul means, we kind of have to take apart both of those words, blessing and curse. We'll start with curse. You and I today, we kind of think about cursing as like the four-letter words we're not supposed to say. But in in the first century church, the the Jewish Christians, what a curse meant was actually something different. A a curse for a first century Christian was was actually praying to God that something awful would happen to the people who did something wrong to you. It would be praying to God that fire would rain down from heaven on your enemies. And and this is actually, it was strange, there's actually a little bit of precedence for this in Scripture at least for the Jewish Christians. Why? Because the Jewish Christians, they believe they are a descendant of Abraham, right? They believe Abraham is kind of their their biological and their spiritual father, so to speak. And, And one of the first promises that God makes to Abraham as he kind of establishes the nation of Israel is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, no matter what happens, I have always got your back. When, when people bless you, I will bless them. And, and if people do harm to you, I will be right there to defend you. And so the Jewish Christians, kind of thinking about their history, thinking about that promise of justice from God, think that they are entitled to rain down curses from heaven on their enemies. But Paul sees this kind of practice in the Roman church, and he says, no, 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 no. That's not what tried and true love looks like. That's not what mercy looks like. You need to not curse these people, but actually bless them. And here's what blessing looks like. 
It's not just like waiting for a Roman soldier to walk down the street and sneeze. Being like, God bless you, brother. Have a great day. It's speaking well of somebody. To, to bless somebody is to honor their name, to exalt their name and lift it up, no matter who they are. And so when Paul says, bless those who persecute you, what, he, what he's really saying is that you need to take the people who want the absolute worst for you, and you need to do everything you can to wish the best for them. Not only to their face, not only when you see them in public, but also in private. You don't just show a happy face when the Roman soldier comes walking by. No, when you get, a, get home and you feel a little bit more safe, you don't start slandering the government. You don't start waging this kind of cultural war in your mind between like the church and the state. No, you do everything you can to bless, to, to exalt and esteem, even those who persecute you. Not to, not to say everything they're doing is okay, but to wish the best for them. To wish that they would know what justice looks like. To wish that they would know what love looks like. And you can be the one to show that to them. The second group of people that Paul tells the church in Rome to look out for is the hateful, but the final group of people. The third group of people that Paul tells the church in Rome to look out for and to love is the hurting. Look with me again at Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Paul says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Step back into the day and age in which Paul is writing. There's plenty of reason for the early church to weep. They're weeping because of the poverty they face. They're weeping because of the persecution that they face. But they're also weeping just because of all the other problems that they face just by living life, the problems in their deepest, closest relationships that have gone away. Because being a, a Christian in the early church, it often meant being abandoned by the people who used to be closest to you. The people who used to be closest to you, your, your family and your friends, when they found out that you were now a Christian, that you were now following Jesus, they wanted nothing to do with you. They, they, they turned you aside and they left you behind and they started keeping you at a distance. And, and in the church, there's just plenty of reason for grief because of that. It's plenty of reason to grieve the, the loss of those relationships. And Paul extends a challenge to the Jewish Christians in particular. He says, when you see people weeping... When you see people hurting, here's what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to offer them advice that they didn't ask for. You're not supposed to just try to, to cheer them up. You're not going to take some Bible verse woefully out of context to sort of lift their spirits. No, Paul offers the Jewish Christians a challenge. He says, dare to feel with them. Dare to lean down, sit down with them on the side of the road and just weep. Just weep with them, lean in, and listen to their problems. I've got a friend of mine, actually one of my professors at seminary. His name is Dr. Richard Mars. And Dr. Mars is, is an incredible theologian, an incredible preacher and teacher, but he also happens to be a clinical psychologist. He got his PhD in clinical psychology, and then God did this awesome work to bring him into the ministry, but he has spent like hundreds and thousands of hours with people in crisis intervention. He has seen people at their lowest. He has seen people in the deepest amount of trauma that they could possibly experience. 
And there was one morning I remember in class, he was kind of telling us about that, and he says, guys, listen, there's going to come a moment in your ministry when you don't know what to say. There's going to come a moment in your ministry when somebody is hurting and you have no idea how to respond. When you don't have the words to fix the problem that they're in. And the wisest thing typically would be not to say anything. But if you have to say something, if there's something you feel like you have to say, there are three words that will never let you down. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more about the love that let you down. Tell me more about what it's like to be alone and ashamed and afraid. Tell me more about the people who were supposed to love you that didn't. Tell me more about your mom who left you when you were 10 and who on her way out the door was quick to remind you that you were the reason things weren't working out with your dad. Tell me more. Tell me more about the friend that you had in high school, the friend who said they loved you, that they had your back, and then as soon as your back was turned, they put a knife in it. And they started spreading rumors about you, spreading gossiping about you, and, and they started telling the whole world just your deepest and your darkest secrets. Some of them were true, but most of them weren't. Tell me more. Tell me more about the boyfriend that you had in college. The boy who told you that he loved you, the boy that promised you everything, prayed over dinner, and then got a couple of drinks in his hand and just turned into a totally different person, a person who made you feel absolutely worthless inside. Tell me more. There is power in simply listening. There is power to the love that simply leans in and listens. That is the most active sort of love that we can do. It's far from lazy. It is real, and it is true, and it is tried. How do we know? Because Jesus did it first. Jesus did it first. Jesus did all of this first. Jesus Christ was the first one to love the helpless. He was the first person to look at the, the poverty of the world around him, to look at them, and, and Scripture says he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were aimless. They had nothing. And then Jesus had compassion on them. He gave them a dose of, of heavenly hospitality. He, he opened up the door to the Father's house, and he set a place for them at the Father's table where, where mercy and grace and love overflowed in a way that doesn't let them down, that actually lifts them up. Jesus Christ was the first person to love the hateful, especially the people who hated him. The people who persecuted Jesus, the people who, who cursed him by nailing him to a tree, these were the first people upon raising from the dead that Jesus says, you know what? You wanted the absolute worst for me. I'm going to give you something better than you've ever had. I'm going to give you more than you could ever take away from me. I'm going to give you a spirit filled with power, filled with love, and the forgiveness of all of your sins. Jesus Christ was the first person to love the hurting. Jesus Christ, the God of heaven, heard the cries, heard the hurt of humanity, and then he did a courageous thing. He stepped into humanity, and he dared to feel with us. The shortest verse in all of Scripture is Jesus wept, and Jesus wept with us. He felt our pain. 
He felt our hurt. He acknowledged our hurt. He leaned in and listened, and then he bore our pain on the cross. And upon raising from the dead, Jesus announces to all of us who are in many ways still in pain that there is a place soon coming, a place where there will be no more pain, no more hurt, no more crying anymore, and that place is an eternity with him. That is what tried and true love looks like. It's not a love that lets us down. It is a love that lifts us up. Why? Because when Jesus raised from the dead, he, he promised that we would be raised with him, not just our spirits, not just our self-esteem, but our body, our mind, and our soul together, that we would all be lifted up together with him. That he would give us glory, that he would give us honor, that he would put us on a pedestal before the Father in heaven and say to him, I love them. I love them. But before Jesus could give us glory and honor, he had to lose it. He had to face the unfathomable shame, the despicable shame of the cross. And then while he's on the cross, he looks at the joy that was set before him. You and me, he says, it's worth it. He says, you're worth it. He says, my love is for you and my love won't let you down. That is what tried and true love looks like. And there is no greater love than this, than the love that would give his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. And to call his enemies, the people who hated him, his friends. To call us family. And to create a family of God that, that stands the test of time, that is tried and true, extending into eternity. That is what tried and true love looks like for you. Amen.